Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of A Good Drop, where each week and every week we shake, shake, shake that bottle and pop the cork out the window. Yes, today we are back talking about sparkling white wines, but we're taking it right back to the very first sparkling white champagne. Certainly the most popular or most well-known now. I'm Stu. I'm Michael. Cheers. Cheers. Champagne, yeah, fancy, fancy stuff. I, you know, guys, this is gonna be, I believe this is will be the first time I've actually had champagne, like the ridgy ditch, real deal champagne. Champagne, 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 champagne that actually follows the rules set down by the Origin de Controle, the AOC. Which is not to say that I haven't had amazing sparkling white wine before which i have i most definitely have had great sparkling white wine but not officially champagne yeah so i guess let's talk about what makes something officially champagne to begin Mm. because i mean we've talked sparkling white wines before yes and while champagne is a sparkling white we'll we'll get into the history a little later on of why i believe it to be the first (laughs) but for now Let's recognize that many people use champagne as a generic term for sparkling white, but it is actually illegal to label any product champagne unless it both comes from the Champagne region and is produced under the rules of the Appellation d'Origin Controle. Yes, so the rules which are followed in uh, the vast majority of countries, including Australia, Chile, Brazil, Canada, China, everywhere in Europe... It states that to use the name Champagne, the grapes must be grown in the Champagne region of France, following rules that demand uh, secondary fermentation, where the wine must be further fermented in the bottle, and the grapes must be exclusively sourced from specific parcels in the Champagne appellation, and there are specific pressing regimes that have to be used. Now, primarily, the grapes also must be either Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier, or Chardonnay, but tiny amounts of Pinot Blanc, Pinot Gris, Arbane, and Petite Meslier are vinified as well. Now, if you guys remember way back to our Sparkling White episode, uh, we used a Australian wine from the Brown Brothers which had Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier, and Chardonnay grapes in it. So it was almost like a champagne, but obviously they couldn't call it one. Because it had not been grown in the correct area. Correct. However, what we are drinking today is the Jean-Philippe Moulin Vintage 2008 Champagne. And Jean-Philippe Moulin, over the past 20 years worked for winemakers such as Reinhardt, sorry, Ruinhardt, Mum, and Champagne Baron de Rothschild. Wow. And still, for his brand that now exists under his own name, for his own label, 
he uses the same sorts of grapes and the same techniques that he used when working for those champagne producers. Except he's not uh, bottling these wines in France. Mm, well, I, I believed that, but now I'm not so sure because the bottle does say that it's imported, I think. He's an Australian-financed winemaker. Yep. I know that because the wine comes through Naked Wines, which finances small Australian winemakers. But whether or not he's bottling here or bottling there, I don't know. I'm going to check the bottle. I'm going to check the bottle. All right. Because even if it says it's an import, it might be because the grapes are imported. Yeah. Well, it can't be a product of Australia if it uses imported products. Yeah. Well, sort of. It can be. But they'll say... It has to say... Made in Australia. Well, it says imported in Australia. Made in Australia with imported ingredients? Um, specifically imported in Australia by Naked Wines. Huh. Produced by... Champagne Jean-Philippe Moulin versus France. So it's actually French. So the whole lot is actually produced in France and then imported to... And then imported to Australia and sold here. How he manages to sell it at such reasonable prices is beyond me considering the imports. Mm. Maybe it's not that good. Oh, it is. <laughs> yeah, that's very interesting. Um, so, because um, we were discussing before that we were we thought that he imported the grapes and fermented and bottled in Australia, and that doesn't sound like it's the case anymore. We will have to check the website. I think. Yeah, no, it seems likely that he's doing the entire process in France and then they're bringing it all over here. Hmm. But possibly, maybe he's doing everything in France but bringing it over here and it's finishing fermenting in the bottles in Australia. Maybe. So technically it's imported, but at the same time, the process finished here so the alcohol content wouldn't have been as high when he brought it over. And therefore, fewer stamp duties. And therefore, fewer stamp duties. <laughs> of course, we're, we're just... Speculating. You know, yeah, yeah. We are wildly speculating theories here because I have looked on the interwebs and it says nothing. Mm. It does not tell us. It does tell us it's a product of France. Right. Which makes sense being a champagne. Yes. Which makes sense being a champagne. So, let's stop speculating and how about we taste it? Yes, let's taste Because it smells very good. Yes, it smells wonderfully fruity and soft. Mm. Unlike a cheap sparkling that we've had before. Yeah. Ooh. Ooh, that's really good. Mm. It's almost like a cloud dissolving in bubbles on the tongue. Mm. And it's got a, a little bit of bitterness. Like a, a Chardonnay sort of sits on the back of your tongue a little bit, but it's muted, I guess. Yeah, and it's still, it's sweet and it's fruity. And it's a little dry, as you expect from a Chardonnay. 
but not excessively so. This is wonderful. Damn, I should have gotten a bottle when you were offering. <laughs> yes. You should have. I wondered if you'd regret it later. The answer is yes. Wow. This is probably the nicest champagne I've had, my nicest sparkling I've had before. Had ever. Mm. Oh, it's, yeah, it's the nicest I've had as well. I mean, I've had the um, Jean-Philippe Moulin vintages before, but it wasn't a 2008 vintage. It was whatever his last vintage was. No, six or something, I think. But equally as good as this. Wow. Yeah, that's wonderful. So, champagne, guys. Have it. Bye. Yes. So, let's... That's uh, that's the episode. See you later. (laughs) Let's talk champagne history, shall we? Yes. Because, uh, although we uh, associate it with the Champagne region of France, it wasn't actually created there first. Oh. According to the according to Wikipedia, uh it was uh invented in the Lumos region, Lumos area of Languedoc in 1535. Sorry, sparkling wine was invented there, not champagne. Well, that's an interesting alternate version. I mean, we, we've known that alternate alternate histories on things often exist in places like to claim yeah. that they made it up first. But um, one thing we know for sure is that early wines from the Champagne region weren't white. They were a pale pinkish color mm. and were primarily made from Pinot Noir. And which is a red wine yeah, grape. Yeah, which is a red wine grape. And the... Uh, the winemakers of the Champagne region sought to produce wines of equal quality to their neighbours in the Burgundy region. But the climate of the region made it very difficult to produce good red wines. The grapes would struggle to ripen fully, and that often led to wines that were thinner and lighter-bodied than those from Burgundy, and usually had uh, lower sugar levels and higher levels of acidity. And the cold winter temperatures would also prematurely stop the fermentation process, leaving the yeast dormant to be awakened by the warmth of spring and begin fermenting all over again. Now, if that occurred after the wine had been bottled, the carbon dioxide produced during the fermentation process would cause a build-up of pressure, which often led the weak, early French wine bottles to explode. Now, those which survived were found to contain bubbles, something winemakers of the time considered to be a terrible fault. And in fact, as late as the 17th century, winemakers from the region, including the Benedictine monk Dom Perignon, were still attempting to produce their wines bubble-free. But uh, while the French were busy trying to get the bubbles out of their wine that they had accidentally put into it, (laughs) the British were developing a taste for bubbles in wine. And... uh, With that slowly growing in popularity among uh, wealth and royalty, but not really in France until the death of Louis XIV in 1715. 
1715, when the court of Philippe II, Duke of Orleans, made the Champagne region sparkling wine a favourite among French nobility. And that led to more local winemakers attempting to make their wine sparkling deliberately, but they didn't actually know how to control the process or make bottles strong enough to withstand the pressure. Mm. I can hazard a guess there'd be a lot of exploding bottles back then. Yes, and it wasn't until the 19th century that they solved that issue. So it was about 100 years Mm. of making wines where half of the stock exploded before they actually got around it. And that still happens with homebrew. Um, People have bottles that aren't strong enough. Yeah, people get bottles that were designed for other things, Mm. and then they put something in it that's going to build pressure, and it just goes boom. Poof. And of course, in Australia, homebrew left in a shed will just Be- go... Beer goat left in a shed will go boom because yes. it gets so hot. Yes, will go boom. <laughs> but uh, the fortunes of the Champagne region and the popularity of the popularity of their wine grew uh, quite well after you know the royals in France and the royals in Britain started drinking it, and uh, it became popular in Russia, it became popular in the US. Mm. And then in the early 20th century, they suffered numerous setbacks. Well, to start off with, there was the Philozera outbreak, which wiped out most of the world's crops of wine grapes. Yeah, and while it took it a little while to get to the colder climes of the Champagne region, it did eventually get there, Mm. and sure enough it messed with them. And then from 1902 to 1909 the harvests were further troubled by mould and mildew. Then in 1910 the Champagne region was hit by hailstorms and flooding that wiped out nearly 96% of their crops. At this point you'd think it's a miracle that we're even drinking Champagne today. But yeah. wait, but wait, there's more. Yes, because uh, <laughs> around that time, a little thing called the Great War happened. Mm. And sadly, the Champagne region was in a relatively important strategic point in France and thus became somewhat of a no-man's land in between the area held by the Axis and held by the Allies. Mm. And so a lot of... A lot of the vineyards were abandoned and a lot of them were hit by stray mortifier and the like and just destroyed. So it's it's sort of surprising that they even came back from that. Yeah. And yet there's even more, even more bad luck for the poor vineyard, poor winemakers of Champagne. Yes, because the war ended and they sort of got back into production. But then in 1917... They lost a large portion of their customer base when the October Revolution in Russia led to a prohibition of champagne and other luxury beverages. (laughs) And that prohibition wouldn't be eased until the 1970s and wouldn't be removed entirely from Russia until the Iron Curtain fell in 1991. Amazing. So that's a huge chunk of their uh, sales. Just gone. Yeah, for a massive period of time. But... Remembering that it, this began in 1917, then we get to 1920, where US prohibition kicked in. So there's the, sec- there's the other giant market for champagne also wiped out. Also, yep, completely gone. I think at this point, there's only uh, 
uh, Western Europe and Western Europe, England, and possibly Spain left. Yeah, able to purchase what little wine they were able to produce. Mm. And, you know, they recovered and they sold where they could, and then World War II happened. <laughs> yeah, again, amazing that we're even drinking it today. Yeah. That said, it is considered by many that the final explosions of World War II was the popping of champagne corks. <laughs> Because that's what happened after the final documents were signed to end the war. Mm. Three bottles of champagne were opened. Only three? Mm, only three by, by those who matted, you know. I, I suppose they're they're the ones only, that were recorded. I suppose there was only three left. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> but, luckily, after that, sales of champagne surged after the war was finally over and they were able to rebuild the vineyards that had again been destroyed. Mm. And since 1950, sales have grown steadily to the point where now over 200 million bottles are sold annually. Yeah. Well, with it tasting this good, I'm not surprised. Yeah, it's... Like, amazing the difference between... A sparkling wise mm. that is made using the same ingredients as champagne mm. and champagne, which is made following the rules of the Origin de Controle. Yeah. However, let's keep in mind, this bottle we're drinking is, a be- is about two and a half times the price. And the uh, other bottle we were drinking is a non-vintage. Yes. It's, it's important to recognize that this is a vintage. Yeah. So there, there are definitely differences in the wine. They're not a, a direct comparison. Yeah, though I have also had the non-vintage champagne from this guy. Mm. And it's it's not as good as this, but it's still really good. <laughs> right. So uh, we have to mention champagne in popular culture. Oh, absolutely. Because it's been in popular culture since the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, I mean, when we mention that it was big in Russia, and it was big in the UK, and it was big in the US. It was big. Yeah, and I mean, we saw it in cinema, as far back as cinema goes. Mm. Well, even in, um, yeah, even mentioned by uh, playwrights and uh, writers, like uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald. He, um, he is known for, known for saying... Uh, too much of anything is bad, but too much champagne is just right. Uh, he's he's a pretty old guy. Yeah, no, that's that's true. And uh, <laughs> didn't even didn't William Churchill have something important to say about champagne when they were trying to defend France? Oh yeah, he said, "Remember, gentlemen, it's not just France we are fighting for; it's champagne, because we we all know he loved to drink." Uh, oh, yeah. Including his uh, famous Churchill Martini, which is uh, two, uh, two dashes of uh, gin with vermouth waved in the general direction of France. <laughs> yes. Or ge- waved in the general direction of the, bo- of the glass. <laughs> it was gin. His <laughs> yeah. It was just gin. Um, so... 
thanks to the the champagne houses and brands like Moe, Don Perignon, um, and even later brands like Cristal, they really pushed and marketed this um, this drink as a a treat, a celebration, a luxury. Really entrenched it in the lives of the higher class, and therefore trickled down to the middle and lower classes for when they wanted something extra special to celebrate, to uh, to toast. Yeah, and even something that comes out at events like, you know, obviously weddings, mm. people drink champagne, or at the very least a sparkling wine, and, you know, horse races. Fantastic example of when people pull the champagne. Oh, yeah. Like it's, today, it, for example. Today's, uh, today, the day of recording, it's Melbourne Cup Day. Yeah, and undoubtedly the bubbles were flowing furiously. Mm. Because it's just tied to the culture. Yeah. Um, Something that probably dates right back to horse racing in Britain. Mm. Yeah, very true. Um, so, of course, the story of champagne wine is has been retold and... Uh, history uh, remade, getting rid of the uh, outdated and unfashionable ideas and images and promoting the uh, more desirable ones, causing the uh, premiumization of wine, I guess. Um, uh, Rappers like uh, Biggie Smalls, uh, Jay-Z, where's the other guy? Freddie Mercury, they all talk about champagne and they all feature it in their, in their video clips and songs like as a celebration thing. Like they, they are part of the marketing strategy of these giant champagne houses at this point. Oh, absolutely. And you hear stories about these rappers throwing down thousands of dollars on bottles of champagne for themselves and their entourage. Oh, yeah. Oh, you've got one about, was it Jay-Z? I think it that, was Jay-Z, yeah. That spent like 10 grand. No. More than that. More than that. Because no, it was, was 10 grand a bottle, wasn't it? Yeah, it was that one with the, the gold label with the spade on it. Mm. Which is a ludicrously expensive champagne. Yeah. I, I believe the label on those bottles is made of pewter. There you go. Just uh, casually throwing out a, a metal... On the bottle, on a glass bottle. Yeah. Um, And so not only is it well known as a drink, it's actually now been started to, well, recently as the 80s, it's been used as a colour reference for artists or photographers, um, seamstress, tailors. They, if you want a a champagne coloured wall, they know what you mean. Yeah, it's it's a colour that is, I guess, because of the rules tied to the production of the drink with the name, the colour is consistent, mm. which means you can refer to something as that. And I mean, you can even see cars that are champagne coloured these days. Like I, everything. I think that's an awful colour for a car. Oh, to absolutely. Be I agree. <laughs> there are a lot of awful colours for cars. Mm. And let's not forget 
the uh, ritual of smashing a bottle over the bow of a newly named ship. Yeah, and usually not a cheap one either. Mm. It's a, it's it's meant as a a sacrifice to the, I guess to the sea gods or whoever, to um, wish the ship a a long and successful life. Yes, yeah, so it's like one for my homie Neptune. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Neptune. Um, people even use it at uh, christenings. Uh, it's not uncommon. Oh, well, they they poor- smash the bottle over a baby's head at christenings. It's not very nice. Yeah, poor, poor, uh, poor champagne. What a waste. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just christen the baby the same way you christen a ship. They probably just pour a drizzle over the over its brow. Or something, or something instead. like that, yeah. yeah. Instead of the bow of the ship, it's the brow. Um, and of course, you've you, you've got uh, sports teams celebrations, like winners, uh, Formula One. Yeah, where they just shake the bottle until the cork blows out. Mm. And, then, and then spray it all over each other in the crowd. Yeah, spray it all over each other and the crowd. Once again, completely wasting lots mm. of undoubtedly delicious champagne. Yeah. Well, I think people make specific champagnes just for that reason. I would say that um, Moe or um, Benedictine or whoever, um, Dom Perignon, they, I would say they definitely make champagne just for shaking Just it. for celebrations. Yeah, just for... Because they definitely make oversized bottles. Have you seen the size of those bottles? Oh, some the, of them are enormous, yeah. Yeah. Like, I have never seen a bottle that big in person. It's got to be, like, a gallon. Oh, I have. Have you? Oh, yeah, you can... I've I've bought bottles of red that size. Holy shit. Yeah, there, there's a name for it, but I forget what it is. It's a... Yeah. I have to look it up, because we, we need to mention the name of the very large one-litre bottle. <laughs> oh, no, I'm not talking about a one-litre bottle. These bottles that they shake at the Formula One are, like, three litres, four litres. They're huge. Either that or these race car drivers are tiny, which is a a good possibility. I know jockeys are quite uh, short guys, usually short guys. Uh Champagne bottle sizes. Okay, so this has led me to find champagne bottle sizes because there are many. There is the Magnum, which is the 1.5 litre. It is a Magnum that I have had previously. Then there is the... As opposed to a Magnum PI? As opposed to a Magnum PI, yes. Mm. <laughs> yes, so there's the uh, Jeroboam, which is sometimes referred to as a double Magnum, and is three litres. Yep. Then there's the Methuselah, <laughs> which is six litres. Holy shit. The Salmanazar, which is uh, nine litres. Can you even lift those at this point? Or easily pour them? I expect it would take two people and a great deal of practice, probably. <laughs> because we're not done yet. There's the Balthazar. Oh, right. Which comes in at 12 litres. Jeez. And then the Nebuchadnezzar, which is the largest of all the mainstream bottle sizes. Mainstream bottles. <laughs> yeah, right. And is a whopping 15 litres. Wow. It's big enough to fill 120 champagne flutes. All right. So if I have about 120 people at my wedding, 
Or if you have 120 people at your wedding. Just need one bottle of champagne. Just, just one need, Nebuchadnezzar. Just one Nebuchadnezzar. But yeah, so it's probably, I would guess that it's a Methuselah or a Jeroboam mm. that they're shaking up at those celebrations. Probably the Jeroboam, mm. the three liter. I doubt it's a six. I doubt it's a six. Yeah. 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 And we we could go on and on all evening, but we've uh, we've reached the point of our podcast where it's time to wrap it up. So I guess that means it's time for the plugs. Hmm. So if you liked what you heard, guys, uh, please like and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. You can find us on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Spotify, Stitcher, uh, Podbean. I think I mentioned them already. Um, you can. We're at where our name, our podcast name is a good drop all about alcohol. Yes, and we are also on the socials, Facebook and Instagram, as a good drop podcast. Yeah, uh, we've got a website with a big old list of previous episodes. A gooddrop.com.au and if you've got any comments, questions, feedback, suggestions for future episodes, or if you want to tell us champagne is not the drink for you, you can send us an email to a gooddrop at gmail.com. And do be sure to tune in for our next episode. We're back to doing comparisons of glasses. And we are seeing which glass is the best glass for drinking scotch. I'm looking forward to this one because I love scotch. Like, scotch is one of my favorite drinks. So, being able to taste it out of different glasses and find the, I guess, the best one. Yeah, I mean, I until the two we had done already, I never would have believed that you could have such a big difference. Oh, yeah. Um, we'll ramble on about this next week. Until then, cheers. Cheers. <laughs>